Good to see you guys. Good morning. My name is Luke Miedema, and uh, this is my second week to be with you all, so it's a pleasure to be back. Um, I work up at Northwestern University with Reformed University Fellowship. It's uh, the PCA's Ministry to College Students. So um, you guys are kind of new to the PCA. I don't know if you've heard of RUF yet. Uh, it's There's maybe 130, 140 of these ministries around the country, but because the PCA... Uh, the mothership is kind of down in the southeast. That's where the majority of them tend to be. And so we're actually the only RUF group up here in the state of Illinois. So out on the frontier, that's why you haven't heard of us yet, but now you have. So uh, actually, I should say before we get going today, um, this year, this fall, is our 10-year anniversary for being up at uh, Northwestern. Uh, another pastor before me started it, and then this will be my fifth year at the helm, but uh, we're throwing a party, so if anybody wants to come up and field trip to Evanston in the fall, November 6th, I'll send the info to Paul, and he can uh, pass it around to you guys, so you guys can hear about what we do and the impact that the ministry's having on that campus. Um, so yeah, I'm married. My wife Janet and I have three kids, seven, three, and one and a half, so uh, life is full right now, and it's good. Uh, we're in the middle of a short series uh, two-week little mini-series, and we're calling it um, I Am, or the I Am Statements of Jesus. Uh, the reason we're doing this, I explained this last week, I'll just do a little, uh, a little recap. There are a lot of versions of Jesus out there in the culture, okay? There's a lot of stories about Jesus and interpretations of what he is about. Um, almost every single person you meet has heard of Jesus, um, even people who have no interaction with the church, no interaction with the Bible, everybody knows who Jesus is. Um, but the question is, where are we getting our information about Jesus? Where are we receiving the stories that we hear about him? Um, is it from, you know, the academic kind of version of Jesus that uh, maybe scholars talk about? Is it the hip-hop version of Jesus that Kanye West and others are talking about? Is it the Jesus that Time Magazine publishes a story about once a year around Easter? Everybody, Jesus is everywhere in the culture, but have we encountered the real Jesus? So we're looking at the Gospel of John where there are more self-identification statements from the mouth of Jesus than anywhere else in the Bible. This is where Jesus tells us who he is. So in the book of John, we see Jesus according to Jesus. So last week, uh, we saw that Jesus ca called himself the door. He said, I am the door, and we explored that for a little while. This week, we're going to look at a passage from John 15. Uh, this is something he shares with his disciples during the final meal that he has with them before he goes to the cross the next morning. So if you want to read along, follow along as I read, we're going to read John 15, the first 11 verses. This is John 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. 
and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and are so proved to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray briefly before we jump into this text. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you show us this morning what it means to abide in the vine of life. We ask that you help our hearts believe and trust the promises of Jesus. We ask that you give us courage and boldness to go out and live according to how you've called us to live in this world. We ask these things in your name. Be with us this morning. Amen. Okay, so uh, I don't know how you guys keep tabs on the news. Uh, I used to watch the news, um, but I, literally, I haven't done that in literally years. I don't know when the last time I watched a news show is. Today, these days, I just uh, scroll through my Twitter feed and kind of see what's going on. That's kind of my, the way I keep track of what in the world's going on out there. Um, but Twitter's a funny thing, because if it wasn't posted within the last four or five hours, it's just lost into the black hole of the internet, right? So, and I'll never see it. So unless it was like extremely recent, extremely new, uh, it's, it's gone. It's lost to me. And so for better or worse, this is kind of how I keep track of the news. But the shelf life of information on Twitter is almost zero. Like it just doesn't stay around very long. It, it only matters for a few hours and then it's gone. Um, so last fall, I think it was, the company Twitter went public. Um, and uh, I saw this, it was probably a tweet that I read, uh, this headline about um, Twitter going public. This was only two days after they made their debut. Um, on the New York Stock Exchange. And it said, the media has already lost interest in Twitter. Uh, news volume surrounding Twitter has fallen off a cliff since the IPO debut. Okay, so it's not like laugh out loud funny. I'm funnier than that uh, sometimes. But it's sort of like ironic funny, right? I mean, the business, the, the, the company that has built its entire business around disposable income or disposable commentary on life, uh, was disposed of by the media in like two days, right? They were done talking about Twitter um, almost as fast as Twitter is done talking about anything. That's kind of funny, sort of funny. It's like ironic funny. Um, whether you think it's funny or not, I do think it's a sign of the times. I do think that this points us to something that's deeply true about our world and what our culture values. And that is this, the new is in and the old is out. The fast is what matters, and the slow is passe, right? The, the, what has value in our world is what happened most recently, the thing that, that, that is really fast, that's immediate, that's only four or five hours old. Anything after that kind of gets lost in the cultural memory. We might expect this rule to apply to technology, like of course technology needs to move fast, and that's what's valued there. Um, but I think this rule applies to almost every area of our culture. So, for example, these students that I'm working with at Northwestern, and this is probably more true of me than I care to admit, but you know, I like to talk about my students, so I don't have to be too vulnerable in front of you. Um, my students these days, uh, they're at Northwestern, and that's a good school. 
and they're taking on some pretty complex material in their classes. And so they show up from high school and they get into these tough classes. And if they don't understand something like the first day, like it's stress out time, right? Like I'm talking, I'm, I'm meeting with them and pastoring them through um, the fact that they don't grasp complex material almost immediately. Like their expectation is that if it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen now. Um, and it stresses them out if it doesn't happen right away, right? The idea that it might take days or even weeks to wrap their mind around some of this stuff, stuff I don't even understand, I'm not even gonna try. Um, they're 18 and it needs to happen immediately. That's the value that's been imported into their education, into the way they think. We could probably sit here all day and come up with ways that the immediate is given value over the long term. Uh, here's one, and this actually, uh, this, this is fascinating. It, the, the emphasis on the short term shows up even in our biology, e even in our physiology. So Nicholas Carr is an author. He's got degrees from Dartmouth and Harvard and all right, smart cookie. Um, and he realized one day that he was having a harder time uh, concentrating on the books that he was reading. He couldn't pay attention as long as he used to. And so he set out to figure out why. And he did a couple years of research, and he ended up writing a book called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brain. And um, it was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And this is essentially his findings, The Shallows. He writes, what the net seems to be doing is chipping away at my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way the net distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once, I was a scuba diver in the sea of words, and now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. What he found in his research is that the way we use the internet, the way we interact with the world around us, is literally re rewiring our brains to be able to keep up in a fast-paced world. Um, our brains, our physiology, our biology is being changed by the values of our culture. So across nearly every category of our life and culture, we find an emphasis on the short-term and the immediate. The things that seem to matter the most are the things that happen fast. And if it's not happening fast, and if we can't chart the progress, probably it doesn't matter. How different is that assumption from the assumption that we see Jesus sharing with his disciples in this passage? Uh, it's so different, in fact. There's only one single command that Jesus gives his followers then and today. There's only one word that Jesus imparts to his followers the night before he goes to the cross, and the same word that he wants to impart to you and I this morning as we seek to follow him in this world. And it's a, it shows up nine times in only these 11 verses. And it's a word we almost never use today. Jesus tells us to abide. When was the last time you used the word abide? Besides this morning. The worship team actually did a good job of integrating some of the themes that we're going to talk about in the sermon into the worship and into the confession of sin. But before you walked in the doors this morning, when was the last time the word abide came out of your mouth? I bet none of us could think of it a time. We just don't use it in everyday speech. Um, well, of course, as you know, the most famous use of the word abide, besides the time Jesus said it, was from the movie The Big Lebowski. Now... 
I don't know how many of you guys uh, have seen this film, this important, crucial film. Very good. Uh, the Coen Brothers, right? Some of my favorite directors that are working today um, made this film, um, and it's a strange movie. Uh, J- Jeff Bridges plays the dude who is caught up in a series of wild events. Uh, the um, There's kidnapping, he and his bowling buddies are being chased around by neo-Nazi nihilists who believe in nothing but want to do them harm, right? It's just wacky. His life is total chaos for the whole movie. He doesn't know what's going on. But the constant refrain throughout the movie is that the dude abides, right? Um, Throughout the film, the dude abides. In other words, the dude is still here. The dude survives the chaos. The dude endures to the end. The dude has clung to life by the end of the movie. The dude abides. Now, when Jesus gave this command to his followers, uh, he didn't call them dudes that we know of. It might be deep in the Greek somewhere. I'm not enough of a scholar to tell you. But Jesus is saying this. He's saying, my disciples, those who follow me, my disciples abide. Followers of Jesus stick around. Uh, They stay connected in faith to the vine of life. They endure in their belief. They cling to life. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that this is the defining characteristic of saving faith. You want to know if your faith is real, true, saving faith? The author of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 4. We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Endurance, perseverance, abiding, clinging to life amidst the chaos until the end is the defining characteristic of real saving faith. Saving faith, we could say, is sticky faith. It sticks around. It perseveres in trusting Jesus day after day, month after month, year after year. It's a faith that wakes up every morning and acknowledges again our sin, acknowledges again our need for the blood of Jesus, acknowledges again our repentance, and calls out in Jesus, to Jesus, and the great promises available in the gospel. Eugene Peterson uh, is a pastor and an author I go to a lot. I really like him. In fact, Paul, um, since he's not here and sitting on the beach somewhere uh, soaking it in, uh, I think he's been posting Eugene Peterson quotes all week on Facebook. I don't know. I've kind of noticed that. Like, he's out on the beach reading this guy. So I figured I'd quote him. Um, But Eugene Peterson wrote a book about discipleship. And the title of the book is A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And he writes this. There's a great market for religious experience in our world. There's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations for Christians called holiness. What matters in today's world is measured in Twitter time, and it's forgotten tomorrow. What matters in the kingdom of God, this garden that God is cultivating in the world, is a slow long-term, persistent clinging to life. Jesus is just saying, stay attached to the vine. That's the only thing you got to do. Abide. That's the one central calling of the Christian life. What matters is clinging to life. But notice this as well. This is the one command Jesus gives, this central tenet of the Christian life. It's a calling from Jesus. It's a command. He's saying, stick around. He's saying, abide. 
saying this afternoon, tomorrow, your work is to cling to life, to keep trusting. So it's a command, but it's also a promise. Look at verse four. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As you abide in me, I am promising to remain connected to you too. It's a calling and a promise all wrapped up into one. So we see this, this principle at work. Even our trust, even our belief and our faith that we put in Jesus is a gift from Jesus, right? Even the faith that we put in Jesus is a gift that Jesus gives us who has committed himself to his people. Paul tells us the same thing, Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. If he gives you faith, he promises that he will complete what that faith is intended to do. The faith that Jesus has planted in you, he will sustain in you. Even our perseverance, our belief, is a gift given from Jesus. He calls us to abide, and then he promises to abide with us. Abide in my love. Abiding, resting in the love that has already been applied to you. It's the most basic work of the Christian life. Um, so this passage, in some way, uh, is like the lay mis of Bible passages. Now, you guys know uh, the Victor Hugo novel, Les Miserables. Um, it's been remade into Broadway musicals and movies regularly, right? It's a fascinating and compelling story. And I think... Part of the reason it has such a draw, part of the reason it's such a recurring story that every generation loves is because um, the moment of grace in that movie, in that novel, comes at the beginning, right? A lot of stories have redemptive endings. We could come up with a whole list of movies that have redemptive endings. I don't know if The Big Lebowski's on that list or not. I'd have to think about it some more. But there's a whole bunch of stories out there that have redemptive endings. Not very many have redemptive starts. So in a lot of ways, Les Mis is a story about grace being shown to a man, Jean Valjean, who the criminal who is sentenced to the, the, the camp, the work camp, is released, is shown this incredible gift of grace by the priest who offers him the silver that he's really trying to steal. And he says, with this silver, I have bought your life. And the whole rest of the story, that's in the, one of the first scenes, and the whole rest of the story is about how that grace sinks into Jean Valjean's life and then is lived out in his world. So this passage is in some ways the lay mis of passages in the Bible. There's a lot of them, but this is one of them, right? Jesus says, abide in me and I will abide in you. And then let's watch what happens over the course of your life as you abide in me. What will happen to you over the course of your life as you abide in the grace of Jesus? Well, this passage gives us four things, four promises of the gospel that will happen to you and I if we stick it out with Jesus. So in kind of the second half of our time here, I just want to look briefly at these four things, these promises that will happen as we persevere in faith. Jesus says we will be pruned. He says we will bear fruit. He says our prayers will be answered and that we will find abundant joy as we stay connected to the vine of life. So let's look at the first one. We will be pruned. Verse one and two. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser, or the gardener is another way we could translate that. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes 
that it might bear more fruit. The imagery in this passage is God the gardener getting his hands dirty. He's cultivating his kingdom in the world. Um, And he's doing it for maximal fruitfulness, right? He wants what? He wants to grow, to grow abundantly in this world. And he says, I'm going to make it happen. And one of the ways I'm going to make it happen is by pruning the branches that are bearing fruit. Now, I don't know if that excites you or not. This promise from Jesus that you will be pruned. You will be put on the table. He will go to work on you. He's going to cut things off, right? We read the same promise in Hebrews 12, where he says it's for, it's, for, um, it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons when he goes to work on you. God is involved and invested in the lives of those he loves. He's cultivating something in you, and he refuses to leave you alone until he's done. Now, sometimes, sometimes when God goes to work on you, that feels like great comfort. That feels like hope that feels like peace, the subjective feelings that kind of get stirred up in us are, are, are good feelings, right? It's rest. It's like, thank goodness God is at work. There's hope there. Sometimes when God goes to work on you, the subjective feelings on the inside feel different than that. They don't feel good, right? It feels like frustration. It feels like doubt. It feels like affliction. It feels like kind of a grinding endurance. The subjective feelings are going to change day to day, but what's not going to change? This word from Jesus, that he is at work in your life and what he's doing, whether it happens to feel good at the time or it happens not to feel good at the time, is all moving towards the same goal, and that is your completion, and that is his kingdom, and that's his glory. God's work in your life growing you up never changes. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. Do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction. Would we really describe it that way? Is the affliction light and momentary? This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Right now, it could be that all you see and feel is the affliction part of that. There's no way you would describe it as light and momentary. It's been long. It's been a grind. It's not light. It's heavy. But this is what both Jesus and Paul is saying. I'm not saying this to you. I don't have the authority to say this to you. I don't know you well enough. But this is what Jesus is saying to you, right? That your pain and your affliction is momentary. And compared to the glory that it is achieving for you in God's kingdom... It is light. It is light and it is momentary. And the reason is nothing is wasted with our gardener God. Every move he makes is intentional. Nothing is by accident. Nothing is wasted in his garden. Pruning, discipling, disciplining, gardening. God doesn't leave those who are united to him, who are connected to the vine of life alone. As C.S. Lewis put it, regardless of the cost to us, or regardless of the cost to him. He will finish what he starts in you. You will be pruned. Promise number one. Um, Promise number two. He even tells us why. He says, uh, as you abide in Jesus, you will be pruned so that you will be fruitful. Look at verse four and five. 
Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it's he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, so Jesus tells us where he's taking us. He says, this is my plan for you, to bear much fruit for my kingdom. Now, what should we expect to be the natural outgrowth of a life connected to the vine? Over months and over years, remember, we're not trying to measure it on Twitter time. We're not going to see it there. But over months and over years, um, as we fight to believe the promises of Jesus, what should we expect to see bloom in our lives? Well, Paul picks up the kind of horticulture, gardening imagery here in Galatians 5, and he tells us what to expect that is going to bloom on our spiritual trees. He calls them the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Um, now, I'd never noticed this before. I probably would never have noticed this. Uh, but John Stott, um, the, the great British uh, pastor who just passed away a few years ago, uh, in one of his commentaries, points out that um, of this list that Paul gives us, the fruits of the Spirit, they're kind of grouped in three sets of three. He says the first three um, describe our deepening relationship with God himself. It's love and joy and peace. The next three describe our deepening relationships with those around us um, in service and love. It's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness to one another. And then the last three describe a sort of uh, deepening relationship with ourself, you could say. It's faithfulness, it's gentleness, it's self-control. It's evidence of internal growth. It's um, a steadiness. It's a reliability. It's a rootedness in Christ internal fortitude, solidness. So what Jesus is promising when he promises us fruit and that Paul unpacks for us is what we could call holistic human flourishing, right? It's every relationship in our life growing and deepening in the ways that God calls us to live. It's life as it was meant to be. It's a vertical relationship of acceptance and love. It's horizontal relationships of service and grace and giving and patience and it's internal relationships with ourself without anxiety, without fear, without being driven by this idea that we're going to get found out all the time. Well, that all sounds nice. When do we get to that part, right? Uh, and here's where we need to return to Jesus's main point, his governing verb, that word that we never use. Um, abiding is the long road. Abiding does not happen on Twitter time, so don't let Twitter time shape your expectations of it, right? Don't get frustrated that you don't see this yet or you don't see it as much as you want. Um, but remember the words of Jesus. He is at work in your life as you remain connected to him. So instead of letting our feelings govern our relationship with God, let Jesus' words right here dictate how you relate to him and how you feel towards him. God is at work in your life. He says, whoever abides in me and I in him, it's he that bears much fruit. Just trusting in the promises of Jesus guarantees this happens in your life. We can relax. Okay. The third promise of the gospel in our passage is this. Uh, and this one will be a little longer. The last one will be a little shorter, just so you know where we're going. Um, is this. 
Third promise, as we abide in the vine, what happens to us? What's, what, what, what should we expect to see? We're told that as we stick it out with Jesus, as we abide in his promises, our prayers will be answered. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Uh, not just here, but six different times in the Gospels, Jesus says, ask anything in my name and I'll give it to you. Now, we hear that and we say, wait, really? Do you actually believe this promise? I can help you answer that. No, you don't actually believe this promise. I don't actually believe this promise. I don't know anyone who actually believes this promise all the way to the bottom. Ask anything in my name and it will be done for you. That sounds outrageous. I mean, that sounds crazy. None of us truly believe this. And James, uh, the brother of Jesus, the author of the New Testament book, tips us off to the two ways that we fail to believe this promise. In James 4, he says, you don't have because you don't ask. Or you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So he says, here's the calling. Jesus says, ask anything in my name and I'll give it to you. But we either don't ask, uh, because we don't actually believe that it's true, or we ask, but we're asking with the wrong motives. And so the promises of Jesus um, um, are not given, right? Two sides of the road to fall off. Um, Not asking or asking selfishly. Now, I don't know which one of those is sort of your habit, your MO, to not ask or to ask selfishly. Um, The not asking habit uh, doesn't really turn to prayer first or second or fifth, but this person is going to tend to um, plan first, then strategize a little bit, uh, then network, and then go raise some money, and then start implementing um, the plan, you know, and then kind of at the end of that, ask for God's blessing on things, right? Prayer's in there, but it's like sixth or seventh on the list. Um, the, the asking selfishly habit prays a bit like a chart that I saw floating around the internet um, a little while ago, maybe a year ago, that describes our prayer life based on our Myers-Briggs personality types. I don't know if you guys saw this or not. Um, the My- Myers-Briggs personality test, you guys know this? Yeah, okay, this is what kind of categorizes your personality based on, um, there's four... Uh, There's four variables, I guess. Um, So introvert, extrovert, uh, organized, unorganized, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, Thinker, feeler. Um, So I like the Myers-Briggs test. My parents actually had me take it like eight times growing up to like chart my development as a child, which probably contributed to my development as a child. (laughs) So... um, but anyway, this chart kind of struck my fancy. So if you know, if you know these, these terms, ISTJ, an ISTJ would pray like this. Lord, help me to relax about the insignificant details beginning tomorrow at 11.41.23 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. An ISFJ would pray like this. Lord, help me to be more laid back and help me to do it exactly right. An ESTJ says, God, help me not to try to uh, run everything, but if you need some help, just ask. And for my fellow INTJs in the room, we pray like this, Lord, keep me open to others' ideas, wrong that they may be. (laughs) So you see what we're doing here. We're praying, we really are praying, we're asking, 
but we're praying in a constant orbit around that which we find to be most important, which is still ourselves, right? We have yet to be reoriented to God as our orbit. We're not in gravity around him. We're still in gravity around us. We're asking, but we're asking selfishly, or we're just not asking. But Jesus shows us the way forward. He shows us a prayer that takes seriously the command to ask anything, to ask anything, but to do it under the banner that God is sovereignly in control of your life and what he wills is what's best. How do you pray like that? How do you keep both of those dynamics in your prayer life? Well, just minutes, really, after John 15, um, Jesus walks out of the room and into the garden And before he goes to the cross, he prays to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prays this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So do you see how Jesus prays? He prays anything. I mean, he prays his deepest longing is not to go through the pain, the loneliness, the abandonment, and mostly the separation from his father that he's about to go through as he dies for our sins. He says, take this cup from me. And yet he knows for a fact that he was sent to the world to do that very thing. And so he says, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus can pray his heart's deepest longings. He can pray his doubts. He can pray his fears, but he can do it under the banner, knowing that God is good and he loves him. And whatever God's answer is, that it's for the best, right? Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. He prays in according to the promise that he's given us in this passage. It's an amazing prayer. Paul Miller wrote a book called The Praying Life. Highly recommend it. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it or not, but he writes this. The praying life is the abiding life. One of the best ways to learn how to abide is to ask anything. Just start asking. Don't ask for spiritual things or good things. Tell God what you want. Before you can abide, the real you has to meet the real God. So just start asking. Uh, Quick example, a a student of mine at Northwestern, this girl, um, was uh, going through some hard time. I mean, she was was, uh, doubting a lot. She's grown up as a believer, but she was doubting a ton of things. She wasn't sure she could trust the Bible. School was hard. She was lonely. Like, life was kind of dark for her. And so she started this uh, prayer regiment that she later told me she called her heresy prayers. And she would just pray all of that gunk to God, right? Everything she didn't believe about him, she would let him know about it. Everything that she uh, thought that he was ruining in her life, she would tell him that. And she called them heresy prayers. And, uh, and I just thought it was a beautiful picture and a beautiful phrase for what Jesus is really asking us to do. Jesus is not afraid of what you feel, what you doubt, what you want. He knows all of that. What he wants is to hear it from you, to get in a conversation with you about it. And through that conversation, to shape you more and more into his image. He's not afraid of your heresy. We've all got it. There's all, we all have things we don't believe about him. Pray him to him. Heresy prayers. That was a great example of exactly what Jesus is calling us to do and exactly what he promises, how he promises he will be at work in us as we stay connected to him, the vine of life. Okay, finally, last one. 
we see that as we endure with Jesus for the long haul, we will be filled with joy. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my, my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Since we took a little longer in prayer, this will be short, but consider this, this in the same breath, the same breath, Jesus tells you he's going to go to work on you and prune you and you will experience frustration and affliction and pain. And he says your joy will be more full than it ever has been. These two things are both true with the gospel and they're true at the same time because the joy that Jesus offers and that Christianity offers is not joy that's based on the undulating circumstances of our everyday life. It is joy that's far deeper and far um, richer than the chaos that kind of swarms above it. The Christian joy is a rock on top of which all that other stuff flows right over like a river. You can be joyful and sad. You can be joyful and frustrated. You can be joyful and experiencing affliction because you're still connected to the vine of life through it all. So I don't know which of these four promises from Jesus is kind of hardest for you to believe. That the pruning is good and it should be welcomed. That your prayers will be answered. That your life will bear great fruit for the kingdom. Or that you can have joy regardless of your circumstances. I have a hard time believing all four. Um, probably all of them for you as well. But Jesus' word to you this morning is that these are the truest things about you if you stick around with Jesus. These will define your life for decades as you stay connected to the vine of life. Abide in me, and all the riches of my kingdom are given to you. Last quote from Eugene Peterson. In honor of Paul on the beach, reading Eugene Peterson right now. He writes this. Eugene Peterson does, not Paul. Uh, I want to cultivate my relationship with God. I want all of life to be intimate, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, with the God who made, directs, and loves me. I want to do the original work of being in a deepening conversation with the God who reveals himself to me and addresses me by name. I don't want to dispense mimeographed handouts that describe God's business. I want to witness out of my own experience. I don't want to live as a parasite on the firsthand spiritual lives of others but to be personally involved with all my senses, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. There is no shortcut to the abiding life. We can't just latch on to a spiritual guru who is connected to Christ. The abiding life is the original work of you, the personal you, connecting to the personal Christ. Now, we need each other to do that, but you can't live off the spiritual juices of someone else, off of Paul's or mine or any other pastor or any other sermon you're listening to online. Um, the abiding life is a life that encounters the real Jesus, Jesus according to Jesus, the Jesus that says, I am the vine, I am the door, I am your bread, I am the resurrection and the life. That's the Jesus that we're called to trust in and believe. And as we do, these things will happen. We don't have to make them happen. He makes them happen. These are the promises for his people. Um, God is at work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for the simple calling that stands at the center of the Christian life. We thank you that 
even the calling to abide is not something we have to achieve or perform or get right, but that you promise to stay connected to us. You've called us to trust. You've given us rest. You've called us to believe the promises that you achieved on our behalf in your death and resurrection and ascension. So I pray that this uh, community, Missio Dei, grows in their um, abiding. I pray that we, um, as a community, help one another trust and believe the good word that you've given us. Thank you for our time in your word this morning, Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen.